When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burned by Books. I'm going to kick us off by introducing my special guest host today. Will Holmes is a student at Ithaca High School. And importantly for this conversation, he is a recruited college basketball player who will play next fall for Hamilton College, where he'll be studying biology. He is also my oldest son. Welcome aboard, Will. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, so I'm going to now uh, kick off an introduction of our novel and novelist for today. When the Knicks backup guard Jeremy Lin scored 38 points against Kobe Bryant's Lakers at the Garden, it was clear something new had entered the world of American basketball an Asian-American star was born. Lin's meteoric rise from bench warmer to media star and his equally rapid disappearance from the zeitgeist has been the subject of several recent documentaries, trying to understand the various meanings of what was then dubbed Lin sanity. It is also the backdrop for Matthew Salis's newest novel, The Sense of Wonder, which fictionalizes Lin's fame and its aftermath. Lin's doppelganger, Wan Lee, has his own Linsanity moment, called The Wonder, a play on his name, W-O-N. But whereas Lin has been notoriously tight-lipped until recently about the experience he had with the Knicks, we get a first-person perspective into Wan's mind, who struggles with the tension between his invisibility to the team and to American culture and his brief dramatic stardom. 
The narrative voice and the sense of wonder is shared by Carrie Kang, a TV producer who wants to bring K-dramas to a U.S. audience. Carrie's own struggle against the expectations for how her industry and her country understand her role as a cultural mediator begins to mirror Juan's experience in the NBA. Shadowing this pair is the journalist and former high school basketball phenom Robert Sung, who ends up covering Juan's wonder in ways that will challenge their friendship. Matthew's novel pulses and cracks with life, driven by an urgency that for many was invisible during Jeremy Lin's rise, but which now lives in the complex consciousness of Juan and Carrie. It is an urgency that Matthew draws out of the basketball court and its giant-sized players and egos and into broader American life, so that Juan's story of brief visibility in the culture becomes the story of Asian American invisibility. There are, for Asian Americans, as with all racial minorities, shockingly few frames of reference for success and meaningfulness. Breaking through stereotype often means severing a part of oneself in order to fit a mold. This is the powerful story of the costs of those sacrifices and the power of refusing to be the model minority. Matthew is the author of the national bestseller, Craft in the Real World, and he was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for his, fic for his novel, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. BuzzFeed has named him one of 32 essential Asian American writers. He is an assistant professor of writing at Columbia University. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me on here. We're thrilled to have you. The sense of wonder is, at least in part, a fictionalization of Jeremy Lin's career in the NBA. It follows the events of what was dubbed Lin's sanity and the effects of that brief stardom on your stand-in for Lin, one. What was so compelling about Lin as a character in American sports history? Uh, yeah, thanks for that question. I I guess I would say, you know, it is totally fiction, right? So uh, Lin isn't really the character here. I, I, what was interesting to me was the way in which he was viewed you know, both before Linsanity, right, as a kind of bench warmer who nobody gave a chance to, even though if you had been kind of following him, you would have seen him score quite a few points in the NCAA tournament, you know, outplay John Wall during the summer league, um, et cetera. And then uh, during the week or two weeks of Linsanity, and then directly following Linsanity when the kind of rug was pulled out from under him. Uh, and so I invented a character who goes through a similar process uh, or a similar kind of time in his life. Um, though, of course, I didn't really know anything about how Lynn must have felt about any of this, even though I, you know, I watched the documentaries and followed the story quite closely and wrote about it at the time. Um, one uh, kind of has his own thing going on and is trying very hard uh, to, you know, both have his contract renewed and to capitalize off of this experience um, when he gets so few opportunities and yet also, you know, trying to protect um, himself as a, as a person, right? And 
and trying to stay true to who he is, you know, or who he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously you talk about the wonder a lot in the book and that obviously is like closely referenced to the phenomenon that we saw of Linsanity. And as I was reading, I started realizing more and more kind of the, um, the racism that was backed behind kind of the whole like title of Linsanity, like almost creating it. So it was seen as like a phenomenon that like an Asian American could be doing this. And do you think that, you know, Linsanity was ultimately beneficial or more, you know, detrimental to the Asian American community, both concerning athletics and more just in general? I think it was definitely beneficial to the community. Um, I mean, I, I remember those time that time still as the best two weeks I've ever felt about America, right? It, it seemed like mm. this is the country that's been promised us, right? A country where anything is possible for anyone. Um, and even though, you know, the racism came down pretty hard, <laughs> Uh, right after that first loss, you know, there still was the sense that this had happened, right? That this was real. I think that's something that people have kind of are still protecting and trying to remember in the book too, is, is trying to, you know, record is the realness of that actually happening. You know, you see these documentaries now where for much of the culture, it seems as if it never happened at all. Right. Um, but and obviously it did, right? And it, and it had a real effect on the community. Um, and so even though, you know, I, I don't think it really did as much for the community as maybe we had hoped at the time that it would, um, or it certainly didn't. And the kind of aftermath of it really, I think, hindered and Lynn's career and, and kind of put him in a box basketball-wise that wasn't his you know, kind of box or his system to play within, never really got that same chance on the court. Still, I know from hearing from friends and stuff that uh, kids playing now, Asian American kids playing now, at least have something they can point to and say, look, it happened, you know, it happened for somebody. Um, it's possible. The sense of wonder is an unexpected two-hander in which Carrie Kang Wan's girlfriend gets her own time in the narrative spotlight. She's an actress and producer, and she works to bring K-dramas to a U.S. audience. K-drama fascinatingly becomes the form by which Carrie starts to understand Wan's experience with stardom and its aftermath in the NBA. Why was K-drama an interesting form for you to contextualize Wan's experiences? So K-drama to me is all about this kind of possibility for more things to happen or um, possibility, you know, within the confines of uh, stories that often revolve around fate or coincidence or kind of relivings of the past. And that actually seems pretty true to life for me. And um, mm -hmm. even for kind of, for, for one, there's this sense that the, his success is always going to be within the boundaries of what people allow his success to be. Right? So for a few weeks, he's kind of allowed this uh, level of freedom that he doesn't ever get again and has never had in the NBA at least before that. And so he has to do the most that he can within, the, within that limit. Um, in K-drama, 
is often this the maybe just as kind of context so k drama korean drama are often like 12 16 20 episode show runs single seasons that like a novel have a clear beginning middle and end and aren't trying to usually set up for future seasons they're just trying to tell a whole story within the time frame that they're given um they're also kind of interestingly written uh, in the past and still now sometimes i think they were kind of written episode by episode as the show was shot uh and so it's hmm. a really tight time frame and they were running two episodes a week and they're long episodes they're like an hour and 15 episodes um and one of the details i really like about the how it used to be is somebody would have to like run the tape from the shooting directly to the office and like get it onto the air and sometimes that was like a pretty <laughs> down to the wire moment there you know like literally hand delivered into the station to get on the air um and so there's a kind of urgency there even to the making of it um that i think is interesting and and carrie kind of sees everything as i think we all do really like through the lens of the stories that she has consumed right and mm-hmm. it's something like for her that's very on the surface that for the rest of us maybe is something we don't often think about. But of course, like we're seeing people and stories and actions and events always through this lens of like, how have we understood stories to be possible in the past? And what are the stories we watch on TV or hear in music or, you know, read in books um, and so Carrie's seeing everything that one is doing through this, through this K-drama lens. And it just so happens that these things, you know, are similar enough in a way and in a time when she really needs the kind of wonder, you know, not in the pun way, but in the, in the <laughs> sense of the word wonder, um, awe and possibility that is sometimes feeling like it's, it's missing in, her, in the rest of her life. It's an interesting uh, counterform to the the one that they experience in their kind of lives in the United States in that that you write that white characters in K-dramas really kind of kind of bumble onto the scene mostly as a a signifier of of racism towards the the Korean characters. And I wonder if that was was useful as as a kind of counterform to what they were experiencing themselves. Yeah, sure. That's a great and really observant question. I think like the in the novel, you know, it is kind of the case sometimes that the white characters kind of step into the scene, at least the kind of side characters, right? Step into the scene to um, you know, be a representative of the kind of uh, challenges that people of color and Asian Americans especially face all the time. Um, And that actually seems also pretty true to my life. The other day I was uh, on my campus, you know, the campus on which I teach classes as a faculty member and just some random white lady told me and my kids that we weren't allowed to be there. and, oh my God! Right, so this is just—it actually happens on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes that's horrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. And this is New York City, so it's like you know, it's happening here, but it's happening everywhere to the tenth degree. Oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. That's that's crazy. <laughs> that's okay. Thank you for saying that. Though. So I was reading um, in school, and I was kind of going through the book and I came across this one part where um, 
one is like having a vision of kind of the court in front of him. And I was with my friend, Justin, um, who's also on the basketball team. And I called him right over. I'm like, Justin, read this. Because the way that you describe playing basketball and everything, like it shows that you have so much of a deeper understanding. I just like really appreciate it. I mean, the way you write about it is like a beautiful in a way that someone who didn't understand the game couldn't write it. And so I was wondering um, like what your past experience with basketball has been and if you were like you have played it or just been kind of a devoted fan. Yeah, so I played, and thank you for that. That actually really makes my day um, to hear that. Uh, I played all through, you know, my childhood and into high school and then played pickup basketball, you know, through college and afterwards. Uh, and I kind of, I grew up in a college town at the University of Connecticut, and which is also a huge basketball school. Yeah, and I I went, yeah, and then, then I went to undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill, right, where the Tar Heels are. Another huge basketball school, so I've been kind of surrounded by that, and and I, you know, I kind of did this by choice because right growing up around basketball, it felt kind of like homey to go to a place where basketball is such a huge thing. I was yeah. actually at UNC in like the the Doherty years, so the year before I entered, they won a championship, and then they kept getting close or, or they were terrible and then they kept getting close. And then by the time I left the year after I left, they won a championship. So I never oh, actually got to be there when they won. <laughs> but so, yeah, I played a lot of basketball and I remember feeling these things on the court, right? Like the sense that you can feel the energy and the times when it feels as if like the game is just kind of happening to you um, more so than like you having to think about what's going on. Because there are times too, I felt like, when I, I was kind of like having to move deliberately and then other times when it like kind of clicked in and it seemed to be just kind of like a, a flow that you were tapping into. Yeah, definitely. And being surrounded by basketball kind of my whole life, like you have been not to the same extent, obviously, but like I definitely um, think that, you know, basketball has like such a, like a gift in being like a connector of worlds. Cause I definitely think, that it's such a diverse sport that it's really, you know, opened me up to a lot of new perspectives, especially about um, a lot of the racism and stuff that my teammates face, you know, kind of in their day-to-day -day lives. And I, I really appreciate like the ways which you like kind of tied those in together. And I was, I was wondering like what the, like the basketball kind of symbolized for you and, you know, its connection to like opening up, uh americans minds to the racism that plays into the day-to-day -day life yeah the basketball court in the locker room and the kind of team environment right or you know i played soccer too for a while um the, the sports arena is an interesting place right it's because it's like those tensions still exist but you also have to play together as a team right so like in some ways you're on each other's side and you have to kind of know how to get along with each other and also kind of like do more than get along with each other. Um, and sometimes on the court, it feels like you have to know people to the extent that you're not even like, right. It's like automatic and you have some kind of like intimate connection with them in this one way um, that doesn't really often happen sometimes, especially for like younger people or people in certain parts of the country uh, as much with other, you know, people from other ethnic or racial groups. Um, 
so like and even kind of like stepping into a pickup game right like you have to kind of you're entering into a sort of dynamic and a dynamic within another dynamic right um a place where uh the real world still exists but is like kind of held at bay for for a moment uh and so i think that's really interesting but i I also find the NBA to be like a fascinating place because those as even just off the court, right? Like at the end of the game, as soon as they, they kind of go up to the microphone and start talking to the, you know, on-court reporter, the, the parts of the game that are, you know, within that bubble are immediately the bubble has burst and you get this kind of like automatic code switching that happens to talk to a reporter. And then you've got to do the like post-game interview, right? And you've got to talk in a totally different way. And the business, all of the business mindset comes in and all of the power dynamics between like, you've got these reporters who are one way, have this kind of power over you. And yet you have this kind of power on the court um, and over your own like placement, right? Which is a newer thing in the NBA that the players are kind of like, forcing the hands of the upper, you know, of the ownership to, to let them move around and, and join forces right on these super teams or whatever. And then you've got the owners, right. Who have this other power over you and even like the name, right. The owner owners and, and like, there's so much power at play in all these different ways. And it's so different, like from the moment the game stops to right to right afterwards. Yeah, definitely. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm going to piggyback on Will's question to say that one of the things that was most compelling about the novel is the way in which you explore the embodiment of racism. You begin the novel with a joke about fans seeing an Asian basketball player and wondering about the size of his genitals. This is developed over the novel into the broader form of how Asian bodies are exposed and viewed by a racist culture. You have Carrie speak about this beautifully in the chapter, A Brief Treatise on the Body, where she wonders how to her desire to bring K-dramas to the U.S., her sister's cancer, and one's basketball stardom might change the way their bodies are seen and stereotyped. Could you tell us more about how this embodiment of racism and the struggle against it inflects the novel? Yeah, so basketball, right, and K-drama, kind of these visual things and physical things um, are so much about the body, you know, like even the ways in which Korean culture has entered, you know, world global culture, but especially American culture is so much about the body. Um, I was doing this interview the other day and the interviewer was saying right now, like kids in school think like Korean kids are really attractive. And that was definitely not the case for me growing up in small town, Connecticut Mm -hmm. in the eighties. And so the, like the ways in which bodies are put on display is also so much, has so much of an effect on the ways in which we're able to kind of like take up and um, have confidence in the space that we are in 
you know, just in regular life. Uh, and so the, the kind of ripple effects, right, of, of seeing bodies in sports and on TV have, have so much to do with just the ways in which we can kind of like live our lives in comfort or discomfort. So you, you wrote, quote, the Knicks were making millions off my name, my number, putting it on any piece of clothing they could, end quote. Um, and it was my impression when reading it um, that kind of I kind of saw more of the way that players are kind of thrown around like collectible items for people to wear on their backs. Obviously, you know, it was most present in my life, kind of the start of that Warriors dynasty and kind of everyone started wearing their jerseys, talking about them. And um, I'm curious kind of what tied, you know, the franchising merchandise piece most to your main theme of kind of the use of Asian Americans for media and sales gain. Yeah, so Asian Americans have this weird place in the culture because they're seen as like a really important market because of the model minority stereotype, right? This idea that uh, Asian Americans compared to other minorities have a lot of money, uh, which is is true of some ethnic groups and very untrue of other ethnic groups. Like the weird thing about Asian America is that it consists of, you know, so many different ethnic groups who've come into the country in so many different ways, you know, some through brain drain and like our, you know, engineers or something. And then others through refugee status who are like some of the poorest groups in America. Um, but I think we're often seen by entertainment um, or advertising as an important market uh, and so you'll see a kind of like even when or when like diversity is on display in advertising I find it's often like either like mixed couples or Asian couple right like Asians kind of play a larger role in advertising than they probably do in other parts of uh, entertainment in America um, because we're seen as a kind of like this is a, a face, a brown face, but like a safe brown face, right? And one who has money like you. Um, so Lynn, I think probably had to deal with it. I mean, where did all those jersey sales go? It, it, when he's on a non-guaranteed contract, making the league minimum, I mean, which is still a lot of money, but right, like compared to the amount of money the Knicks were making at the time. I remember during Lynn's sanity, hearing the sum that the Knicks were making off of the, you know, off of Linsanity per day, it was some outrageous number. I can't remember, but you know, it was, it was more than right. Much more than he was making for the entire season every day, um, hmm. maybe five, 10 times more. And then the kind of disappointment, I think people felt and I felt later when they said to him, you know, go out on the market and get a contract, a big contract, and we'll match it, right? And so he goes out. Houston offers him a contract that goes over the, the penalty marker, right, for the Knicks, and the Knicks don't want to pay that, and so they don't actually match the contract at all, even though they asked him at first to go out and look, um, see what his market value was. What they wanted, I guess, was for him to go out, find that his market value was low, and so they, they wouldn't have to pay him as much. Um, so it's so much of the game, right, is about money. And even growing up with college ball, you know, there are a lot of stories about college players being offered, you know, money as a way, like, as, but these is like, these are violations of NCAA rules. Um, and I always thought, like, 
you know, they're often like asking kids who are on the poor economic spectrum to come and play for this place where they also don't get any money, right? And like to stay at that time, right? It wasn't that common for players to jump straight to the NBA or to jump, you know, whatever the rule is now after a year. So they were often staying to junior or senior year and like hoping they didn't get injured, right? So that they could eventually, finally get some money for all this time. And I think that's, you know, well, I hope that you won't run into that too much, but it's it's definitely just like a part of the sports world. Somebody's always making the money and it's very rarely the players. Um, and that, you know, when you throw in race, which is like a, also a huge part of the sports world, is it just gets very icky. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I definitely think like the addition of like the whole NIL deals and stuff like that is kind of, just further making basketball more of like a financial thing more than anything else. Um, and obviously social media and everything like that has kind of just blown up that whole environment. So that Robert Sung, the reporter who follows one's rise is a powerful foil. His own rise ended too quickly after an injury and he carries a painful baggage of what could have been. This includes a poisonous jealousy of the Knicks star forward Powerball, who is married to his former girlfriend. Because Juan's success didn't exist when Sung was playing, there was, as you write it, no frame of reference for the culture to understand him as a player, as a would-be star, or even as a fully complex, rounded person. How did Sung come into the story for you? Yeah, so the story actually started for me with this kind of love triangle, or what Carrie calls a love triangle between one Robert Song and Powerball, who's the next star and a kind of Carmelo Anthony type. Um, you know, not in the way that I I don't really understand what Carmelo Anthony is like off the page, but uh, the way that the media sees him is as a kind of like person who has immense talent and maybe like is not a winner or whatever. Right. <clears throat> Despite the fact, right. That Anthony, I mean, Anthony was called this, but had won at every stage before the NBA. So Sung, for me was a kind of way of thinking about the same kinds of issues, but from a lens that I am very familiar with as an adoptee. Um, I was adopted from Korea when I was two Sung is adopted and uh, is then like on another remove from everything, right? So that one is at a remove because he's Asian American, but then Sung is even outside of that because he's Asian American, but even Asian Americans don't always accept him as one of theirs. Um, so I was kind of trying to use, uh, or not use, but explore through the dynamic between Sung and one. This, this kind of larger dynamic in Asian America, and then through their dynamic with Powerball, you know, this other part of Asian American tension and history between African Americans and, um, you know, especially the Korean American community, but also other Asian Americans um, in this arena, right, which is different, quite different from the dynamic you see often outside of sports, but in the sports world, right, where kind of African-Americans are the default or the, you know, like the most common racial identity of the players. That's, it's so interesting. I never put together the idea of 
the extra baggage that would come with that game against LA because obviously as you as you're pointing to the the particular racism between Koreans and African Americans um, played out on a, a dramatic stage in the LA riots and then you have that LA game that's that that's fascinating were you thinking at all about that yeah, I was thinking a lot about that. And uh, even when they kind of go to LA, they uh, won in Powerball, hit up K-Town, and they do all the kind of Korean things. They go to a Norebang mm -hmm. and, and sing karaoke and um, are kind of surrounded by their celebrity in that space. And it's like the maybe the one space in the country where one is kind of like the bigger star, right? And it's like the only place where this could be possible. Um, so I was thinking a lot about right the various ways in which the spaces that we're in, you know, whether it's on court or off the court or like, you know, in basketball and not in basketball, in K-Town and not in K-Town, affect the power dynamics between us. Hmm. Well, I know you had a question um, related to Powerball. Yeah, um, I immediately made the connection uh, for Powerball to be Carmelo Anthony. Um, and I, I knew, like, I knew from just like reading about it, that there's like, there's a lot of unwritten history between uh, Jeremy Lin and Carmelo Anthony. And I was wondering, kind of, did you hope to bring kind of a new life to it uh, during the novel? Well, I don't know. I know. I think I, I can't help but think that a lot of what people read into their relationship was projection. Um, and I tend to think, you know, when they were saying their relationship is good, um, but everybody outside of it is saying their relationship can't be good, that like, it's almost as if other people saying it can't be good is the kind of thing that spoils it, right? It's like this poison that seeps in from outside. Um, and so I, I was in my novel, I kind of imagine one as having this like, you know, utmost respect and even like having idolized Powerball as a young player. Um, I grew up actually watching Mello play at Syracuse and um, I loved his game and, and he was, really kind of ahead of his time in many ways. Um, and I also kind of bristled at this, the way in which uh, the media was treating him once he got into the NBA. Uh, and so I was seeing even, you know, in that real life context, the ways in which the story changes from one place to another. Um, and even like from the move, you know, he was still kind of like beloved in Denver, but as soon as right, he moves and there's this kind of whole other narrative about him. Um, and one, I think would be somebody, or even Lynn maybe was somebody probably just being on the inside, right? Who probably would have had a lot of empathy for that and a lot of understanding of the pressures. One has a lot of understanding of the pressures that are on Powerball and the ways in which the media is affecting him and the media stories are affecting him. And so when one himself goes through that, right, he's already got this kind of, even though Powerball is maybe not a model for his game per se, he is a model for like how to deal with this weird media attention and the ways in which it corrupts, um, you know, who people allow you to be. Uh, and so I, I think in the book, there's like a, a, a 
very much so a kind of affinity and connection between them, even though there's also the rivalry that's going on and is kind of also manifested by the media. Um, and that is maybe more of what I kind of imagine maybe was going on behind the scenes, but, uh, you know, of course I don't know. So it's just in a kind of fictional context. Um, I always think, you know, the players just from having played basketball, there's always tension, right? But there's always like camaraderie as well. And so like things that seem like huge blowups um, to the media or to the, from the outside might just be like something you had to do to like continue the friendships and connections on the team, right? Sometimes you have to like air things. Sometimes you got to like get it, you know, fight it out. Um, I, you know, now I, I follow a lot of K-pop and when you hear the the groups talk about, right, their relationship with each other, they're always talking about how much they fight, right? And, and like how poison it is actually to not fight because if you hold it in, then it like the whole group is soured. Um, and so they constantly have to like, you know, <laughs> go at each other, get it all out in the open and move on from it. Um, and I think those those kinds of things from the outside look bad. But, you know, sometimes when you're in a, in inside of it, uh, it's a totally different dynamic. Yeah, it's- I completely agree with that. And I think that you know, the way that the, uh, you know, the media loves a story. So like the competitiveness between players, especially at those higher levels, that can like a lot of times lead to clashing. But I think at the end of the day, the mutual respect that all of them have for each other that the relationships are not really as badly or as bad as the media really portrays them. Matthew, your book on writing craft in the real world has been heralded as causing a sea change in how creative writing workshops are run at universities. My colleagues in the writing department reference it in pretty reverent terms. It's a, it's a book that handles many topics, but it's principally a discussion of how institutions that teach writing have done a disservice to marginalized writers by limiting whose story gets told and in what form and by whom. How is craft in the real world reflected in the process and product of the sense of wonder? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think in many ways, the sense of wonder and even doppelganger, disappear, doppelganger, disappear are kind of in practice, the things that I'm talking about in craft in the real world, right? The ways in which K-drama and the kinds of stories you see in Korean TV and in um, you know, maybe in Korean and Japanese literature, um, you know, not to like paint it in two broad strokes, are are the, you know, frame of reference for the sense of wonder. Um, and I've tried in the book to try to put some of that on the page so that people uh, who aren't as familiar with those references then have an understanding of how these stories work. Um, the... The book, you know, the craft book was me kind of working out a lot of those essays were in, you know, five longer, five years or more before the book came out. Yeah. So I was kind of working out in real time the problems with the novel or, you know, revisions with the novels uh, and in the classroom, trying to use what I was learning about my own writing and about how to fit, you know, writing that isn't always the kind of expected story in an American readership or kind of broader American readership. 
and then teaching in the classroom, students who sometimes were also kind of writing outside of that tradition. The craft book kind of came out of those things rather than the other way around. So like in a way, this novel, In uh, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, came before or during writing of the craft book. And so they do really kind of like show how what I was thinking about and thinking through in craft in the real world appears or manifests on the page. Thank you so much. But before I let you go, I would love to know if you're loving reading something right now and if you have things that you might like to recommend to the audience. Yeah, I'm actually listening through the entire uh, oeuvre, or I'm never sure how to pronounce that French word, um, of Alice Munro right now. And uh, always a good person to read for writers, I think, especially. And uh, some books that I've enjoyed, you know, in the last year or two, Which Side Are You On by Ryan Lee Wong, which is a book about uh, an activist, a young activist who in college kind of finds this activist circle and then goes home and his activist parents, right, who have a kind of very different lived in experience of activism, you know, have maybe a different idea of what activism can look like if you're not kind of just doing it for the short term and you want to actually live a whole life of it. Uh, and so there's some clash between these two different ideas of what this life can look like. Um, and I also really enjoyed Counterfeit by Kirsten Chen, which is a book. I love that, that one too. Ways, yeah, yeah. Some In some ways it's about counterfeit handbags or counterfeit handbag scheme. And the narrator is recounting uh, the story of this to a police officer. But uh, what's really going on beneath the surface is something quite different. And it's a really kind of sharp, uh, smart look at the model minority stereotype and something that I think is really useful and, and, and important about it is that like, I think we often see a lot of um, lamenting of the stereotype from Asian American literature or the effects of the stereotype on us. Uh, but this book kind of shows us a way to use the stereotype to our advantage, you know, um, and to be able to kind of like reclaim the things that are used against us. Well, these are great recommendations. And Matthew, I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk to Will and I today about The Sense of Wonder. It's, it's really a fabulous novel. No, thank you so much. This is so amazing. I love talking to the, the pair. Oh, it's so sweet. I love it. <laughs> Thanks again. And uh, all oh, the best. So I just, I mean, I love the book and it was such a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, I've never, it's cool that my dad does this because I've never got the, the experience to do this, but just reading through this novel, I just, I really appreciate both your writing style and like your insight on things because it really gave me a better look at a lot of the media and stuff today. So I really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you, Will. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My many thanks to Matthew Salisis for a wonderful and generous conversation with Will and me. And a special thank you to my giant son, Will. You are a constant source of inspiration and amazement. Thanks for making me proud. You can find a link to purchase Matthew's most recent novel, The Sense of Wonder, as well as his recommendations at the website burnedbybooks.com, which will direct you to buy from Buffalo Street Books, Ithaca's cooperative bookstore. 
At the website, you'll find all of our previous episodes and book recommendations. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.